That's our mandate. Tell it all. You've got your Bibles today. You can open up to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to start on a new series. I entitled it, What You Know Might Not Be So. Really, it's a, it's a series on deception. How quickly we can be deceived. Today I want to talk about deceiving ourselves. It's found in Jeremiah 37, 1 through 10. Let's read together. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He reigned in place of Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim. Neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Isn't that the way it is? King Zedekiah, however, sent Jehucal, son of Shelemiah, with the priest Zephaniah, son of Maaseiah. Man, I always said get, learn how to give a kid a name that was better than this. <laughs> to Jeremiah the prophet with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was free to come and go among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt, and when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves, thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn this city down. Ouch. Everybody here that's at least 30 years old remembers when I say the day 9-11, you remember what that day represented or stood for. You probably remember where you were when that happened. There were two times in American history this attack of 9-11 was 19 terrorists hijacked planes and ran them into buildings and it was committed murder, suicide. It was one of the worst attacks ever on American soil. It's compared to the Pearl Harbor attack back in December 7, 1941. In Pearl Harbor, 2,390 servicemen and civilians were killed. Of that number, 1,177 were killed on the USS Arizona. But on 9-11, 2,977 died. Out of that, 2,753 died in the World Trade Center, 184 died at the Pentagon, and 40 died in Pennsylvania. And it broke down like this. 246 people died on the planes. 343 members of the New York City Fire Department were killed. 71 law enforcement officers were killed. And on August 2013, authorities concluded that 1,140 people that lived in lower Manhattan at the time of that attack contacted cancer from being exposed to the toxic chemicals released. And 10 pregnancies were lost also. But you know what the greatest deliberate murder-suicide American, in American history was besides this? It happened in Jonestown, Guyana, 1978. False prophet named Jim Jones led his church, the People's Temple, 
down to Guyana to start a paradise on earth, pretty much. And um, the word got back to America that these people, some of them were being held against their will, wanted to leave, wanted to come home. So they sent congressman from California, Leo Ryan, down there to see what was going on and see if anybody wanted to come back. And they put on a good show for him and everything and looked like everything was about in order. But when it came time for him to leave, there, was a, there were some that wanted to leave with him. But Jim Jones and the people that already set up, they were not going to let them leave. And they killed the congressmen, news reporters, and several others. And then he ordered, when he knew the authorities were closing in on him, he, knew, he ordered everybody to drink Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. And over 900 people were killed. Y'all remember that, don't you? How can that many people be deceived? How can people be deceived that easily? Jesus said one of the characteristics of the last days be great deception. Listen to this. We don't know who to believe anymore. You don't believe most politicians. You don't believe the news media very much. You don't believe some preachers. Uh, we don't know who to believe on anything anymore. Listen to this. Media Accuracy did a research. They researched the top 17 newspapers in the United States to see how accurate their reporting was, if they were leaving things out, twisting it, doing whatever. And they checked out on six TV news networks, TV channel networks. The top two newspapers for accuracy in the country were the Houston Chronicle and the St. Louis Dispatch. They did the most accurate reporting, but they, they found out that they were only accurate 58 and 57% of the time, and that was the most accurate. The New York Times was the most accurate only 37% of the time. Then they checked these TV networks, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. They were always all accurate about 48 to 54% of the time. CBS was accurate 30% of the time. And ABC was accurate 18% of the time. When you, have a, when you have a country that you don't know what's true and you're being deceived and manipulated, it doesn't last too well, and that country can't stand on false information. We all know what it's like to be fooled, hoodwinked, had the wool pulled over our eyes, or whatever expression you want to use. We know what it's like to be deceived. Well, we're living in deceptive times. So we're going to talk about in this series about deception. Some of it you can get over with pretty easily, and some of it can be catastrophic. So let's look at the Word of God today. Let's look at Jeremiah, first of all, and kind of lay a little bit of groundwork Here's his problem. He was called, the Bible reveals more about this man internally than any other prophets, I really believe. He was called the weeping prophet because he had a lot of things to weep about. He was also a very reluctant prophet, a very lonely prophet, a very persecuted prophet. He was a weeping prophet, but not a wimpy prophet. He didn't mind saying what God told him to say, and sometimes that got him in trouble, and certainly got him in trouble. He came from a priestly family. He ministered to the last five kings of Judah. And those kings were Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah. He was a contemporary prophet. There was other prophets that prophesied during his time. People like Habakkuk and Zephaniah and, of course, Daniel, the prophet, prophesied at the same time that Jeremiah prophesied. Prophets in those days were not loved, and they were sometimes persecuted, and sometimes they killed them because the people got tired of hearing what they had to say. They didn't want to hear what God was saying to them, and they, and they didn't like it, and sometimes they would get, a, get rid of them. 
And, and so you had to know you were called by God and you had to know you were saying what God wanted you to say because your life was sometimes on the line. I heard one old boy that was in the army, he, told, he was talking to other friends, he said, what, what kind of, uh, what did you do in the army? He said, I was in paratroopers. He said, oh, really? How many times did you jump? He said, I didn't jump any, but I was pushed 18 times. <laughs> anyway, that's the way it was with uh, a prophet. You had to know that God was leading you or telling you something. Because it was very dangerous. So in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, God told him, I formed you, I ordained you, I knew you, I sanctified you. He said all this to reassure him, just do what I tell you and say what I say. Now in this passage in chapter 37, he's warning Judah, your days are up. You're fixing to get overtaken by the Babylonians. And uh, I hate to tell you that, but that's what he's saying. And he says, it's too late to repent. Some say, well, let's go start praying. No, too late. Been calling you for weeks and months and years and decades. And you haven't done anything. So don't pray. It's almost like Noah. Noah begged and well, all the time he was building and pleaded for those people. And finally, when they got in, him and his family got in, God shut them in. Nobody getting in after that. You can bang on the door all the time the water's rising. The door's not opening. And that's what he's saying to these people. No, the time's up because Zedekiah the king had sent some of his servants to Jeremiah to say, hey, start praying for us. The Babylonians are on our doorstep. They're starting trouble, and we need your prayers. And he said, no, it's too late. And so he prophesied. He said, this was going to happen. If you'll read Jeremiah chapter 25, here's what he had told them earlier. I will summon all the people of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar. God said, Babylonian king, he's my servant, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of brides and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. When the 70 years are fulfilled, I'll punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I've spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. So here's what Jeremiah had told him earlier. The Babylonians are coming and you can't stop it now. It's already it's on, in the works. All the praying is not, don't even waste my time. And he told them, as he prophesied, he says, you're going to be captive to these people for 70 years. He didn't say for a long time. See, a lot of prophets today, they, they give such broad, thus saith the Lord, that you've you got to interpret what they mean. They leave it like that because that gives them an out. <laughs> and uh, you can't pin them down to it too much. Jeremiah, he said, I'll tell you how long. He didn't say you're going to be in captivity a long time. He didn't say between 50 and 100 years. You can count on that. He didn't say 69 years or 71 years. He said, you'll be in captivity 70 years, thus saith the Lord. And he told him very plainly and very clearly. Okay, so the king Zedekiah, uh, he's asking, please pray for us. He said that in verse 3. Let's look at verse 2 and 3 and 4 5 one more time. Verse 2, neither he nor his attendants, this is what he's saying to him, nor the people of the land paid any attention to the word that God spoken through Jeremiah's prophet. You haven't been listening to anything I said. Don't pray now. 
You've had chance after chance after chance, and God's been so long-suffering and patient. Like, like the, uh, I remember the time uh, the, there was a little five-year-old kid in church that was acting up on the front row and just making a mess. And you know how sometimes your kids can tell you can't get on to them because they're in a strange place and they kind of just test you a little bit? And they were pitching a fit, and the, and the daddy kept saying, you better straighten up, you better straighten up. And they kept doing it, laughing and jumping around. Finally, he went up and snatched one up and started walking out the middle aisle, out the back door. And they said, I'm sorry, Daddy, I'm sorry, Daddy. I won't do it again, I won't do it again. He said, no, no, we go, you're going to get a whipping. And they were walking out, and the little kid was yelled back at the church, y'all pray for me. And anyway, that's, that's kind of the way Judah was doing. Y'all pray, let's start praying. Nah, they're on the way out now. He said, no, uh, you're fixing to get a spanking now. And God says, it's, it's too late to be praying about this. Well, anyway... The Babylonians showed up in verse 3, and, and King Zedekiah, he sent uh, Jehuchal, the son of uh, Shelemiah, with the priest of Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah, to Jeremiah, the prophet, with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Now look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 5. Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt when the Babylonians were besieging Jerusalem. So the Babylonians are closing in on Jerusalem now. They're fixing to starting on them. And the Egyptians showed up. I don't know if they were going to fight or what. And they started trouble, so the Babylonians, their attention was taken off of Jerusalem and put on the Egyptian, Pharaoh and his armies. And they started working with them, and the Egyptians turned and went back to Egypt. And so King Zedekiah and, and the people of, Ju of Jerusalem, they think, okay, they're distracted, they're going after them now, we're going to be okay. And Jeremiah said, no, well, no you're not. This is what the Lord God of Israel says to you. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city, and they'll capture it and burn it down. He said, they're going to be gone, they, they're going to come right back to you, and they're going to finish what they started. He said, this is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourself into thinking the Babylonians will leave us. They will not. Okay. Now, that's our key text. I want to look at today, laying a little groundwork, how we deceive ourselves. Can you deceive yourself? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can't just be fooled and, and conned and misled by other people. You can lie to yourself and fool yourself. So I'm going to talk about that today, the ways we deceive ourselves. The Bible speaks about this. Now, there's no doubt that our greatest enemy is a deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. The Bible says in, in Revelation 12, 9, and that great dragon was cast out, <clears throat> that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth. You know, we used to always sing that old song, he's got the whole world in his hand. We're talking about God. And God does ultimately, he's in control. But I'll tell you who's got the whole world in his hand. That's the devil. He has blinded the eyes and the minds of so many people. How many people are in false religions because they've been blinded and deceived by the devil? How many people have heard about Jesus, heard the gospel, and they're putting it off to another time? They're deceived. They've been deceived. And, and until they wake up, they're in bad shape. So he says, anyway, uh, there's a lot of deception taking place. Now, I wanna, I'm going to show you eight ways you can deceive yourself. The Bible says you can deceive yourself. And let's go through it briefly. <clears throat> Number one, you can deceive yourself if you listen to the Word of God and don't put it into practice. 
Here's what James says in James 1, 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. See, if you're just a listener, if you just listen to it and don't apply it, you're deceiving yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. Okay, you can deceive yourself. Number one, when you hear the Word of God and you do not apply the Word of God, you've got to take it in and live it out. You've got to allow the Word of God to do something to it changes you on the inside, changes your walk, changes your talk, whatever it is. Oh, Hop, he's not here today. He's taking care of his mama. Sometimes he'll come up to me after preaching. He'll say, boy... He always calls me boy, and I call him boy. Boy, you did a good job today. There's a lot of people in that church needed that. Uh, He'll always say that. Like, I I didn't need it, but everybody else needed it. Well, a lot of us live like that. He's joking, but a lot of us do live like that. It doesn't apply to me. If the Word of God's not applying to you and you're not changed by it, then you're starting to deceive yourself. Number two, you can deceive yourself if you're not conscious of sin in your life. Look at 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're lying to yourself. Now, sin's a big deal. Sin's a big deal to God. Uh, It should be a big deal to us. We minimize it, overlook it, uh, reclassify it or redefine it. Uh, We do a lot of things. We excuse it. One of my pet peeves, I got a lot of pet peeves, but one of my pet peeves is these like pro athletes. They're making millions of dollars, but some of them, uh, say they take this girlfriend and they drag her down the steps and beat her up and all that kind of stuff, and they know they're in trouble, so they have to come out there and apologize so they can get back on the team. And they want to say, I want to apologize, I made a mistake. No, 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 no. A mistake is if you drop a pass or fumble the ball. That's a mistake. A mistake is if you're cooking and you put a little too much salt in it or you're writing a letter and you misspell a word. That's a mistake. You were trying to do something right, but you're human and you failed. But when you drag her down the stairs and you beat her to a pulp, that's not a mistake. That's a crime. When you, when you start redefining sin and mis, misguiding it and, and overlooking and excusing it and things like that, you're starting to deceive yourself. You have to call it what God calls it. Many people are playing games with God and playing games with themselves. A lot of people are deceived because they're not conscious of sin in their life. They've done redefined it to themselves. Number three, you can deceive yourself if you think you're something or we think we're something when we're not. Now, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul's talking to the Galatians. If you see a brother overtaken in a sin, you that are spiritual... Go and restore that brother in a spirit of meekness. And here's a spirit of meekness. Realizing, this is my phrase, that could be you. Realizing, now if you're the type of person say, I couldn't ever see myself doing that. Or I couldn't, we are capable of doing just about anything. If the, if the time is right, the temptation is right, we're weak, whatever, or we're drawn away, our own, you're, you're able to do just about anything in the negative. And sin. And, and, and so you can't feel like you're above everybody else and you, you can look down and point your finger. He doesn't say go to that person and tell them, I told you so. Don't go to them and preach at them and, and 
condemn or anything. He said, realize you could have done the same thing. And if you don't realize that, you're starting to deceive yourself. I, I'll, I'll tell this story. This happened probably 30, 30 years ago or better. Uh, me and Darlene hadn't been married too long. We've been married 43 years now, but this was probably the first four or five years. This was probably 35, 40 years ago. Uh, we were going to church. And have you ever got a good deal on some clothes or, or say, like shoes or, or outfit, and you get two different ones, different colors? You get a brown and a blue pair, a black and a brown pair or whatever. Well, she had gotten some shoes, and she'd gotten some, the same shoe in blue and black and brown. She came to church, and we was going home, and she said, you, I am so embarrassed. I said, why? She said, I got one brown shoe on and one black shoe. <laughs> and I was aggravated because I felt like people are going to think, what would you marry? And I said, uh... <laughs> I said, why in the world? What would you do something like? I can't. How, you, aren't you looking at your feet when you put your shoes on? How could you do that? And I went up one side and down the other. We had a nice little talk on the way home from church. Anyway, <laughs> that night, went to church before choir practice, and I was up there in the choir. I looked down. I had on one black shoe and one brown shoe. <laughs> I promise you. I promise. I've never seen anything like it. I learned a little bit of my lesson that night there. Uh, you cannot think that you couldn't do the same thing. I, I was uh, watching, uh, reading something about the number one, uh, the fastest human this, this year in the 100 meters is a guy named Christian Coleman. Now the world record ho holder is Usain Bolt, but he's the fastest, got the fastest time this year. And he says it's amazing. He's out of Atlanta. He says it's amazing how many people come up to me when they see me, they say, I want to race you. Like, they're going to want to see how good they are. There was a guy named Karsten Warholm. He is the world record holder in the 400-meter hurdles. That's one time around the track, one lap, but you're jumping hurdles also. And he's the world record holder. He was practicing at the track one day, and he said, some guy came out there and said, I want to race you. And he said, well, he said, I had one more lap to, to I was, one more thing as part of my training for that day. And I said, okay, I'll race you. He said, so we got ready and we ran and I made it around. I beat him about a hundred and something yards and he was just sucking wind and, and just barely making it. And I, he come up there to me at the finish line and, and I said, well, I think I got you. He said, yeah, but I want to race you again. I got a bad start. So a lot of times there, there's some people that are absolutely delusional. They think of themselves differently than they should think. If you think you're something when you're not, you're deceiving yourself. Number four, you're deceiving yourself when you think you're wise in this age. Look at 1 Corinthians. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in, the, in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness okay if you think you're wise in this day there are three types of people the bible talked about especially in the last days there's a fool a fool is somebody that says in their heart there is no god that's not just an atheist that's somebody that lives a life that there's no uh, with the reality there's no god that they're going to have to answer to that's a fool the second one that the bible has a lot to say is a blasphemer blasphemers are people that have contempt for god they call evil good and good evil they, they don't care about the things of God, and, and uh, they're very negative. They're, they blaspheme God. They profane God. 
And then the second type is the scoffers. Scoffers, the real cynical person. You know, they said in Peter, he said there'll be scoffers in the last days. Say, when's the Lord coming? They've been saying that for the last two thousand years. That's a scoffer. So there's different types of people that think they're smarter than the Word of God, think they're smarter than what God says and things. He said, if you're like that, if you think you know more than everybody else, you're better than everybody else, you can do this, you're deceiving yourself. You're really foolish in the eyes of God. Number five, we deceive ourselves when we're religious but have an unbridled tongue. Anybody catching on any of these things yet? Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Ooh. All right, here's what he's saying. Now, the, the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue. Uh, just Proverbs, I think there's like 100 verses about the tongue. James gives us a real good uh, explanation of the, the power and the potential and the harm of the tongue in his book. But anyway... Jesus, one time, when they accused him of casting out devils by Beelzebub, he eventually said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, whatever's coming out of your mouth is an indication of something going on in your heart. Just like when you go home, you look at the speedometer, it's going to tell you how fast you're going. That's a gauge. It shows you how fast you're moving. You can go home and look on the wall, and you can look at the thermostat or thermometer. It'll, tell you, it'll, ga it'll gauge you what the temperature is. It's just a gauge. He said your tongue is the best gauge of how good your heart, what condition your heart's in. Listen to what's coming out of your mouth. And if, if your tongue is unbridled, out of control, you got heart issues, don't deceive yourself. Number six, we deceive ourselves when we think we will not reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, reaping and sowing is an agricultural term. It's, a, it's an agricultural law. It's a spiritual law. Uh, sowing and reaping is described in many different ways. Somebody put it this way. It's, it's as certain as the sun coming up. It's as constant as the law of gravity, this law of sowing and reaping. It affects the wealthy and the poor alike. It's the ultimate justice in a court that never has a mistrial. You know, we watch these people constantly parade in front of Congress and their own trial. They're uh, interviewing them and investigating them and all. And we hear all the stories, and nothing ever happens. Yeah. It's just a ritual to appease everybody in the country, I guess. And all right, go on out, and then we'll forget it about it. There's no justice. There is going to be justice with God. Amen. And not only in the, in the future, but there will be justice in this life, reaping and sowing. Now, in, in, in Hinduism or Buddhism, a lot of them, they have what they call karma, which is they believe in reincarnation, that what you do in this life is going to affect how you come back the next life. Well, we don't believe that mess, but, but we believe what you sow in this life, will, you will reap eventually down the road. It's a spiritual law, and if you don't think that'll happen, you're deceiving yourself. Number seven, we deceive ourselves when we think the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. One of the scariest Scriptures in all the Bible is Matthew 7, 22, 23. And that's when those stand before the Lord and say, we prophesied in your name, we did miracles, we did this, all that in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, I didn't even know you. Now that's scary. Here's what it's saying in 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Doesn't take a lot of interpretation. What he's saying, if Jesus said to people that were prophesying in his name and, cast, and healing and casting out demons and doing all these miracles, and he said, I don't even know you. What about the people that don't even care about God, that's living an ungodly life? A lot of people are deceived, think, well, there's many roads to heaven. You're deceived. Uh, if you're sincere, you may be wrong and follow them on a different path, but if you're sincere, you're okay. You're, you're deceived. You can, you're sincerely wrong. Uh, I'm, I can tell you that. Uh, so many things that you've got to watch out for. Some people have deceived themselves in so many different ways. Uh, and if you're living an ungodly lifestyle, it's evident that you don't have Jesus in your heart. Don't think that you're going to fool God. You're deceiving yourself. Number eight, we deceive ourselves when we think bad company will not corrupt us. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be misled or do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. You know, I would tell that to our young people. I'd tell it to the old people, too. Who you hang around is going to affect and shape your life tremendously. Uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, we love friends. We need friends. Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we need friends in this life. Uh, the Bible has so much to say about it. John Wesley said it this way. I will not have a close friend that's not helping me get closer to Jesus. I'm not going to have somebody close in my life that is not pushing me and helping me, encouraging me in the direction I need to be going. Now, those are eight ways that we are deceiving ourselves, and you've got to be very careful because we can lie to ourselves. Now, here's the bottom line. Why do we deceive ourselves? All right, well, I'm going to go to another scripture for this. I'm going to give you two reasons. One is that we don't search. We don't really, I should have put, we do not examine ourselves. There's no searching. Look at first, uh, I'm at Psalm 139. This is David saying this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. All right, first part, search me. There's no searching today. People don't look at themselves. There's no soul searching, I call it. Our, our three biggest requests is heal me, bless me, and give me. And it needs to be Search me, try me, and lead me. That's what Psalm 139 says. We, we're, we're, we've got it reversed. We think God's here to serve us, and we're supposed to be here, here to serve God. God gives us a chance to examine ourselves. Now, the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah said that same thing. Uh, we, can, it, it, we can easily be deceived by our heart. What, what David's saying to God, search me, help me to see what I'm not seeing. Help me to see my, my heart from your perspective. That's what he's asking. Now, searching is a big thing. We have the ability as people to search ourselves, to examine ourselves. If you've got problems with your health, you can do a blood, you can do a, a, a blood pressure test if you want to see if you've got high blood pressure and you can keep up with that. You can do your own examination. You don't have to go to a doctor for that. Uh, women sometimes... Uh, check themselves for uh, possible breast lumps and things like that. We, we do things like you can examine yourself in this life. Well, what David's saying is I want God to examine me 
and I want to see what God has to say about the examination. That's what he's really asking. So he says, search me. Now, searching is a big part of our life, too. The fire department, they're searching through the ash and the rubble to try to determine how that fire started. A detective searches through the fingerprints and the evidence to find out who committed a crime. Archaeologists search through rubble and dirt to try to find out the mysteries of a civilization of hundreds of years ago. They're searching. Uh, psychologists examine people and try to get information on their background, where they've come from, what, where they've come from, so they can kind of see why they behave the way they behave. Searching is a big part of our life. Here's what David's saying: Search me, show me how you see me. It might make me angry. It might embarrass me. It might make me uncomfortable. That's okay. Y'all mind being uncomfortable? Here's what Andrew Murray said. A good man desires to know the worst of himself. Don't lie to yourself. What I'm getting at, we're deceiving ourselves a lot of times. One is we don't examine ourselves. We don't let God turn the spotlight on us. People fall under three categories I found. Two of them's wrong, one of them's right as a Christian. Some of them look at themselves and they feel they're worthless. They're no good. They have a low view of themselves. I'm no good for nothing. Uh, I'll never amount to anything. God can't use me. I'm, I'm, I'm just no good. That's not true. If you, if you look at it that way, then you're, you're making a mockery of God made you, and you are something. So you can't look at yourself as you're absolutely worthless and no good. Some people see themselves and they, they view themselves a lot more highly than they ought to. They think they're special. They think they're God's gift to the world. They think they know more than everybody else. They think this and they think that. They have a high view of themselves. Not good. The, 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 the correct view is not to see yourself as terrible or to see yourself as great. It's to see yourself in between. Without God, I am nothing. Without Him, I can do nothing. Without Him... I don't have anything to offer. But then on the other end, through Christ, I can do all things who strengthens me. I can do this. I can stand on work. I can trust God in, in great things. And so you've got to have a balanced view of yourself. Most people say that men, when they look in the mirror, they see themselves better than they really are. You know, they look in the mirror and, and pose and things like They think they've got, they see a six-pack, but they don't see it's just rolls of fat. It ain't a six-pack. Women, women view themselves worse than they are. They look at every flaw and every bump, but men, they think, I look pretty good. But uh, you can't go to either one of those extremes if you're going to get it right with the Lord. Here's the second thing. The reason we deceive ourselves, we don't search ourselves or examine ourselves or let God search us. And number two, we don't examine when God proves us and tests us. We don't look at the results of the test. Let's look at that, verse 23b. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, and then test me and know my anxious thoughts. Here's what David's saying. Now, this sounds hard. He's asking, God, let me prove it to you. Let me prove how much I love you. I can, I can take any tests that come. Now, he's not just asking, God, give me more tests. Sounds like he is, but he's saying, I'm ready to show and prove that what I have in my heart is real and genuine. You don't, and you're going to school, 
you don't know how much you understand what the teacher's been teaching until you take the test a lot of times. And then that shows you how much of the information you retained or how much you know the subject. Here's what I'm saying. All of us say, I have the peace of God that passes understanding. Until I get into a rough situation, then I get fret and worry and get anxious and fear. Well, then you don't have the peace that passes understanding. Because everybody's got peace when everything's great. What we want to see, we want to see how we handle the test. Or we say things like this. I love people. I love God and I love other people. Now, when people run me the wrong way, I don't have no use for them. Or I, if they hurt me, I don't forgive them. Well, then you don't love them. You're failing the test. You're deceiving yourself. I got great faith. I believe God. I believe he's a healer. He's a miracle. I, I believe it. Until I get in that boat and the wind gets kicking up and the waves get to splashing. That's what Jesus had to say to the disciples when they were freaking out. He says, where is your faith? If our faith, if our peace, if our love and things like that don't work when it's put to the test, we don't have nearly what we think we have. We're deceiving ourselves. Peter was very confident. He said, God, Jesus just said, y'all going to all leave me and scatter like sheep. Peter said, I, they, the other disciples might, but I won't. He said, boy, you'll deny me three times before daylight. He didn't see that at all in himself. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding you. You don't know what's in your heart. God will test your love. He'll test your obedience. He'll test your faith. He'll test your priorities. You know, we, we, we sometimes think we got our priorities in order, and they're not always in order until they get tested, and you'll see what comes first in your life. I heard a story about the four guys that went out deer hunting, and they went out in the woods, and two of them said, we're going to go this way, and we'll split up and go out this way. Y'all go that way, and we'll meet back up at the Jeep truck here such and such a time. Anyway, bam, they heard a shot go off on that one side where Joe and Fred went. And they eventually come on back to the trunk, and here comes Fred dragging a 10-point buck. Man, that's a big buck. And they were all talking about it. They said, hey, where's Joe? He said, I left Joe out there. He was helping me drag the thing out, and he clutching his heart. His heart was, he was having heart problems. He passed out, so I drug the deer back in. And you left Joe out there in the woods? He said, yeah. Why? What are you thinking? He said, well, somebody might steal my deer, but they ain't nobody going to steal Joe. And so a lot of, a lot of times our, our priorities, uh, when they get put to the test, we lose sight of really what's important. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to wind down. If we go into surgery, I've never been into surgeries. Maybe my wisdom teeth cut out, things like this. Thank God for that. But if I'm going to let the doctor cut me open, I'm going to ask him what he found when he looked in there. I ain't going to be like, I ain't going to say, don't tell me what you found, I don't want to know. If you're going to cut me open, you're going to tell me what you found, what you saw, what you got out or whatever. I want to know exactly. And if God's going to cut me open like David's asking me to do, I want to see what do you see. I'm tired of lying to myself. I've seen a lot of changes in the last 
40, 50 years in the church. Some of these, you know, just the way things have evolved. Used to be we had two, two or three revivals every year that lasted about two weeks each. Uh, used to be churches always had the name of the town at the, at the front of the church, Williston Church God or Williston First Baptist or whatever. Now churches today have different names, so not so much attached to the town itself. Uh, we used to have dinner on the grounds one or two times a year. Here's something I've seen change. Preachers used to preach you know, with a suit and tie on. Now they come flip-flops, shirt out, ripped jeans, and hat turned around backwards. It's a, different, it's a different thing. We used to sing, get out your songbook, and we're going to sing. Songbooks are pretty much a thing of the past. Churches don't even look like churches nowadays. Now they're cafeterias and all this, and, and they're multi-purpose buildings and things like this. But here's one thing I've seen that's changed a lot. You don't have many people soul-searching anymore. Amen. Amen. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes you can go home and let God deal with your heart. Yeah. Sometimes you need to let God deal with your heart here. You need to identify what in the world is going on. Are you going towards deception? Or are you really letting God search you? Otherwise, we are living in a time when we're going to be deceived, and a lot of times we're deceiving ourselves. I'm going to close and say this. I'm, going to, I'm not going to pick on her. I'm going to brag on her. Beverly. This happened, I don't even remember what it was about, on Wednesday night. And uh, I was saying something, and Beverly said something like, yeah, those people are stupid or something like that. And I laughed, and I thought, yeah, you're right. And the next morning, she calls me up and says, I want to apologize for saying that. I said, you don't have to apologize to me. She said, no, the Holy Spirit dealt with me, and I shouldn't have said that. I said, I, I admire that. The people that are walking the closest to the Lord are the most sensitive about the things they're doing when he puts his finger on it. Those that are walking farther away, you've got to hit them in the head and they still don't recognize it. Amen. Don't be deceived. I want you to stand. Deception. Self-deception. If you're lost, if you're here today and you're waiting for a better time, or you've heard the gospel message over and over again and you're still not saved, you're deceived. You've got to break out of that because you're, you're on the fast track to hell. And Christians, I think it's time for us to get back to the altar, son, to examine what God's saying to us. Identify. If God can't point things out to us, if he can't put his finger and us respond our heart's getting way too hard. If we think that we're not, we're above everything, and this preacher's not preaching to me, he's talking to somebody else, you're deceiving yourself. So before we leave here today, I want to just spend some time at the altar. We'll just take a few minutes. You can take as long as you want. Let God put his finger on your heart, like David said, search me, try me, let me see what's going on in my life. Let's take a moment and let's just spend some time in prayer. Come on. Come on. You're not going to be that late for supper or lunch. We're living in a day of deception. 
There's many like Demas, Paul's close associate that now loved the present world. He'd have never thought Demas would have done that. Deception. If God cannot show us ourselves and us respond accordingly in repentance and brokenness and humility, He can't change us. If He can't change us, our heart will get harder and harder. We'll get more and more blind until we'll be out and we won't even know where we're at. God, I'm praying for our people in this age of deception. I pray. I pray for the lost and I pray for the child of God. The deceiver is still working. He's not satisfied with having the entire world blinded. He's still coming after the church. He's coming after the people of God. Anyone that's walking close to God, He's coming now. You've given us a chance, Lord. We can stand for righteousness. We can stand on Your Word. We can stand in the power of the Spirit of God. But don't let us deceive ourselves into thinking we're something when we're not. To think something's not going to happen as a result of our actions. Thinking that we won't reap what we sow. Thinking that the Babylonians have gotten sidetracked and they're not coming back. He said, oh, they're coming back. Show us ourselves, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within us, Lord. May the sound in the house of God not only be praise and worship, but be brokenness and tears. May it be people saying, Woe is me. I'm undone. Lord Jesus, keep our hearts tender and pliable. Tender and pliable shaped and molded and used we're still just clay and you're the potter shape us and mold us God in your likeness we bless you today Lord we thank you for men and women Lord that are not saying it's somebody else it's not my brother it's not my sister it's me oh Lord standing in the need of prayer I pray, God, take the scales off our eyes so we can see not only that speck in somebody else's eye, we can see that log hanging out of our eye. Jesus, I pray for your glory and honor. Amen. 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 You can pray as long as you want to pray. I'll dismiss everyone else. Come back tonight. We're having communion. Four times a year we do this. If you believe and what communion stands for, come back tonight and we'll worship together. Praise the Lord.